Number 71 has been asked that we mark that song and we use that at the appropriate time in the lesson this morning. The interest that's ours, the opportunity that's ours today to assemble, the blessedness that comes with it certainly reminds us of that lengthy list of those on the sick list and we're certainly hopeful that things will be much brighter for them in the very near future and that we each can again enjoy the degree of health that we would very much like. Those announcements that were made just a moment ago remind us of the activities of the congregation, so many things that take place, the sign-up sheets, and might also add one other element of a sign-up sheet to that specifically, directed to the men of the congregation. There was a time when on Wednesday evenings for the invitations that we would allow the, the men who had a desire to do so to sign up for and offer that invitation, and we'd like to proceed to try and do that again. So there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer there as you exit the auditorium. So to those men, if you have an interest in doing that, please feel free to just pencil your name in at the, at the particular Wednesday that would be of your choosing, and we'll be more than honored and look forward to, to seeing that good work take place again. As often as we've stated it, it's certainly still worthwhile to note that the talent here is just so extensive, and we certainly want that to be used and developed and to mature in the way that would in fact bring glory and honor to the cause of the Master Himself. The Master Himself is, of course, Jesus the Christ, and this morning for the next few moments, I would invite us to give some thought to the deity of Jesus, as you can see on the slide to my left. As you give thought with me about that word deity and its application to the Christ, I think over the next few moments we would be in a position to understand that there's no subject that would be of any higher appreciation, that would be more needful for you and me to consider and to appreciate than would be the nature of the Christ, the kind of individual that He was, the characteristic of the nature of the goodness, the marvelous wonder of Jesus the Christ. Didn't he say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the exclusive way that leads to everlasting life. And you and I certainly should desire to learn more of Him, to understand more of Him, and to apply what we learn in our lives. One of the things that we appreciate about Him is His coming in Galatians 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul there was able to write this by inspiration. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. Jesus came at just the right time. History, in fact, was brought forth to bear to make things the proper and actual right time for Him to come. And when He came, He said in perfect order the things that God had allowed and desired Him to do. And today we still benefit from the things that He brought before us. It is for that reason that some question about His deity might well be asked. Was Jesus God? Was He divine? There are those in the world who say that He wasn't. There are those who, with rather unashamed face, who will say He was a good man, and He was a good teacher, and He maybe even was even a prophet, but they will not go so far as to affirm that He was God. Those of the Muslim faith, the Islam faith, if you please, they, of course, don't think He was God. To say all that, perhaps, is to ask us, for the next few moments, why not we give a thought to what the Scriptures say about Him and just let them speak for themselves? And as we look at them, I hope that we might even draw to a higher appreciation of not only who He was, 
but just what a great act then it was for Him to give His life for us. We prayed just a moment ago in thanksgiving unto the Father for Christ giving His life, that He came here, that He offers to us the great avenue of thoroughfare for redemption of sins. And oh, what an act it was. Hopefully in this lesson we each shall be drawn just to appreciate it even better. It would be well to say that the number of scriptures would be such that we've selected only a sampling of them. But oh, how much these things share to us. As we think about the nature of the deity of Jesus, that word deity simply means divinity. Was He God? Is He still God? Let's first of all look at the nature of His birth. Much attention is given in the sacred scriptures to the birth of our Savior, to what took place, what came to pass, the events that surrounded it. These are just a few of the thoughts that come to our mind. Might we begin in Isaiah in the Old Testament, the prophet, seven and a half centuries prior to the birth of Jesus, in Isaiah 7 verse 14, the following set of thoughts are presented to us. It says on that occasion that a sign would be given. And this sign would be the following. The virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. There in the long ago, there was something remarkable that was asserted, that there would come a time when a virgin, a woman who had known no man in a sexual way, yet she would give birth. That particular sign affirmed so many years earlier in the preaching of Isaiah and in the delivery that that prophet made known. We notice that we would look in eagerness to the time when that would be fulfilled. When we come to Matthew chapter 1, we find that that passage was quoted by the writer Matthew and it was identified as referring to the Christ. In Matthew chapter 1 verses 23 to 25, we have this situation in which Mary, prior to having known Joseph in a sexual way, she gave birth to that firstborn child of hers. And when Matthew made reference to it, he quoted Isaiah and said, This is that. And thus we notice that there was a supernatural birth. Jesus wasn't born in the physical way using a man and a woman the same way that children are born to you and me today. There was a supernatural, divine kind of birth. Perhaps that leads us to note this. It was the same kind of matter described in Jeremiah 31, 22, when on that occasion it said that a woman would compass a man. In other words, that she would go around the usefulness or utility of a man to bring forth, and in, in that sense, Mary did that. Because wasn't it true, the Holy Spirit came upon her. She was impregnated in a rather supernatural fashion. And when the Christ was thus born, when Jesus was born, we notice His birth testifies to the conception of the Holy Spirit and to the fact that He was divine. All of that helps us see, doesn't it? that the supernatural character of His birth was truly one of a kind. Perhaps that would be expected when we give thought to the fact of that prophecy in Isaiah. But perhaps that leads us to note a second point as well, not only in the nature of the marvelous wonder of His birth. What about the nature of His baptism? At the age of 30, according to Luke chapter 3, Jesus had reached that point when the public ministry was about to begin, and prior to that, He inaugurated it with His baptism. We learn the following things. 
Jesus made that decision to come to where John the Baptist was preaching, according to Matthew 3, verses 13 and following. As he came to this location, John was baptizing, and the Lord, in fact, came also to be baptized by John. John initially was reluctant, very much hesitant because he understood who the Christ was. And in fact, he went on to say, I have need to be baptized of thee. He knew, in fact, if anything was proper in his mind, it ought to be the other direction for baptism. But Jesus, in verse 15, said, Suffer it to be so, for it behooveth us to fulfill all righteousness. At that point, the text simply says, He suffered him. And in fact, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. But at the aftermath of it, in the events that closed it, there was a marvelous, thunderous voice, and it said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father, speaking in testimony to the greatness of what Jesus had in fact just done. But notice also that the Holy Spirit was present as well, for it descended in the form of a dove on, on the Christ. We have all three members of the Godhead present, distinct as they are, but nonetheless present. God the Father in speaking, Jesus the Son, the second member of the Godhead in the baptism, and the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Doesn't that help us appreciate the divinity of the Christ? The Father admitted it, didn't He? This is my beloved Son. He didn't speak about Jesus as if He was some other distant, unknown acquaintance. He doesn't speak about Him as if He is some other entity. This, He said, is my Son. May we never lose sight then that as Christ went about the activities of His life, be it teaching, preaching, the activities of association, He was the Son of God and He testified it. Did He not? God the Father? That reminds us, doesn't it, that when we speak about Jesus and give thought to Him, He was more than just a teacher. He was more than just a prophet. He was God in the flesh. But maybe a third point might well be in order. In addition to reflections at both the baptism and His birth, may we also give thought to this. During His preaching, during the time He taught, how is it that individuals responded to Him? There are many things that might be noted, but here is one of them. On many occasions, He was worshipped. I say that to say this. Jesus on one occasion Himself made this teaching. In Matthew 4 verse 10, this interesting statement is made. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Only God is to be worshipped. Only God is to be appreciated as one worthy of and deserving of worship. And yet on that occasion as Jesus made that statement, how was it that some reacted to Him? In Matthew 8 verse number 2, in fact, you'll notice that among the scriptures I've listed, I only chose to list the ones in the gospel according to Matthew. We could easily list those in Mark or those in John or those in Luke. But just in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, a leper worshipped Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, we learn that another individual well-known and appreciated came and offered worship to the Master. We notice in Matthew 14, 33, the apostles, while they're on a ship that Jesus had just calmed the waters, they worshipped Him. Later, we notice in Matthew 15, 25, again, 
worshipped by those around him. Finally, in Matthew 20, verse 20, and Matthew 28, verse 9, the apostles again worshipped him. Might we pause to ask this? If Jesus had said that only God is to be worshipped, and yet if he willingly accepted their worship and never corrected them, was that not the Lord's way? One way in which he asserted he was God, and that he was divine, and that he was deity? In all those instances, he accepted their worship and never did he reprove them, never did he correct them, never did he assert that that was improper. In fact, he not only accepted that worship, but in light of Hebrews 4.15, Jesus never sinned. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. If the Lord never sinned, that He must not have acted improperly or sinfully by accepting their worship. Jesus was divine. In His baptism, in His birth, in His preaching as far as receiving worship, our Savior was divine. What about a fourth point, at least a fourth concept, His teaching itself? There are a few points of interest, specifically in the book of John, that I would invite us to notice for just a moment. As the Lord taught and as He preached and as He helped others see the nature of God, the character of the gospel, there came a time in John the fourth chapter when He had a conversation with a woman at the well there in Samaria. As a part of that, He of course taught about worship. In verse 24, perhaps the most well-known verse of that chapter it says that God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. But it is right after that when the woman had a very astute point. She in fact said, I know that Messiah comes. She knew she was well schooled in the point of understanding that there was coming one, a very special being who would be the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus to her said, I that speak unto thee am He. He testified to that woman that He was the one she was looking for to come, that He was the one that was the special revelation from God that He was to bear and bring about the anointed message from the God of heaven. Jesus explicitly admitted to her, I am the one. Let's keep that thought in mind though and look five chapters later in John chapter 9. On that occasion, there was a man that had been born blind a lengthy discussion takes place in which Jesus heals that man. After healing him, Jesus reappeared to him and had another interesting thing to say. As a part of that conversation, the man said, I know that we look for one to come. I'm looking for the one who would be called the Christ. I'm looking for the one. And yet Jesus to him said, the one who is speaking to you is he. One more time, Jesus said, I am that special one that was to come, the one that would bring about the nature of the anointed message of God, the one that would in fact be the Messiah, the anointed coming from God. Jesus said, I am He. At this point, might we pause to say this, either Jesus told the truth on those occasions or He lied. Either He was the anointed one from God, God in the flesh, Emmanuel if you please, or else He was an imposter, a myth, a fable, a fake. To those individuals He said that He was the Messiah. He confessed it. He declared it. 
might we say that our Lord was no imposter. He was, in fact, God in the flesh. He was the one who was able to say in John 14, verse 9 to Philip, Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. May we never then think that Jesus, as some in the world might like to say, was just a good teacher. Maybe an expert, schooled philosopher. He was far more than that. He was God. And He showed God to the human family. Doesn't that shed new light also in our thinking as we think about Him going to the cross? There it was God dying. In the sense that a part of Himself, God gave a part of Himself for us. Our sins, our failures, our shortcomings brought God to the point that He sent Himself. For He tasted of death for every man, Hebrews 2 verse 9. Isn't it amazing then to think about the degree of that love for us? He loved Randy Bybee. And put your name in the sentence too. He loved you enough that He brought a part of Himself, sent Him part of Himself to this planet, knowing all the while the kind of treatment He would receive, all the while the rejection that would be His, all the while the terrible crucifixion He would suffer, and all the while because He loved us enough that He wanted that to happen. When Jesus came, you see, His teaching, the fact that He was worshipped, His birth, even at His baptism, the testimony is so tremendous. But maybe there's even more to be noted. In addition to these things, also consider these thoughts about the deity of Jesus. What about His resurrection? He was put to death, wasn't He? There, just outside Jerusalem, we well remember that He was crucified. And as those nails were driven into His hands and feet, here was the Son of God, guileless, 1 Peter 2.21, sinless in every respect, Hebrews 4.15, and yet He was put to death by wicked, cruel humanity. The very ones whom He'd come to save, they put Him to death. But yet the, that death wasn't the end of it. For, do we not read, up from the grave He arose... And in Romans 1 verse 4 it says, He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. In other words, that resurrection is perhaps one critical element in declaring in such a way it cannot be denied that He was the Son of God. When that Sunday morning came, and they came to the tomb and found it empty in Matthew 24 6, or Matthew 28 verse 6, it still is to be noted the tomb was not that which was inhabited. It was empty. Can't we be thankful? Shouldn't we be thankful that such was the case? For He arose and declared to be the Son of God with power because of it. How many saw Him after that resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that the apostles did. Several others are of note there did as well. Among 500 brethren at once. Jesus' resurrection wasn't something just done in a corner where just a selected person or two saw it. Later on, even Paul would admit on the road to Damascus that he too had been blessed to appreciate a conversation and to see him as well. The resurrection was a reality. Today, when you and I visit the cemetery, perhaps loved ones that we have known and the tomb rock still marks the place where the body is, where the body was once placed. But when it came to our Savior, He was resurrected. 
And there were so many who saw him. Imagine then the belief that filled the hearts of them who now recognized who he was and the fact that he had been the one that had been teaching them, preaching to them, reminding them the truth of God. This was the divine Son of God. Oh, when he walked this earth, it would never be the same again. He changed everything, its perspective, the way in which you and I are brought near to God. As you think about the matter of that preaching, what about the convincing of Thomas in John 20? Thomas was of the position to say, unless I put my fingers in his nail prints and into his side, I'll never believe. Jesus said, Thomas, put your fingerprints there. Thomas, when he did so, he responded, my Lord and my God. He knew exactly who the Christ was. No longer was there a doubt in Thomas. No longer was there any ambiguity at all in his thinking. This was the Christ. He's the one that's now in presence. That very one is the very one you and I have the opportunity to admire and adore. The very one who draws us near to God. The very one who in fact is the thoroughfare through whom our prayers go to the Father. And we prayed in His name earlier this morning. In addition to that, can we not say that Paul devoted a fair amount of one whole chapter to describing the resurrection of our Savior. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning about verse number 10, from there, continuing basically through the rest of that chapter, there is a description of the resurrection, what, in, what was involved in it, the nature of the resurrection that shall be yours and mine. One of Paul's arguments and one of his points in that chapter is, if Christ was not resurrected, then neither shall we be. But because He was, we have the guarantee that we too will be. And thus, His resurrection has a real meaning for you and me as we look forward to inhabiting all of eternity with our God in heaven. The power of that resurrection should prompt us to realize that our life here in the flesh must be lived under the direction of the gospel. In Matthew 6, 33, we read about the uniqueness and the need for our givenness and direction of that gospel. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The divinity and the deity of our Savior highlighted maybe in a number of passages. Perhaps our comments about each one can be brief, but nonetheless the meaning is so rich and so enthralling. First of all in John 1, beginning in verse 1, the opening declaration of the book of John in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We have there the statement, this Word was God. It wasn't just like God, but it was God. And we learn, of course, quickly that Word was Jesus. That Word was the Christ. Thus, Christ and God... We notice this Christ, this Word as there it's mentioned, is also a part of the creation in that the Word created things. Everything we see about us in this natural realm was brought about by the agency of the creative power of the greatness of Christ. In Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17 it says, "...for without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him everything consists." Isn't it then amazing that there are those who can read these passages and claim that He wasn't God or that He was only a teacher 
or that he was only some kind of specially blessed prophet, they've missed so much power and majesty in the givenness of the text. And furthermore, what shall be the reaction when they shall bow someday before the very one who they never thought was God? Will they not be found lacking? Will they not be found wanting? Certainly, that's the intimation of the New Testament passages. You'll notice in 1 John 5 verse 20, the second passage of that, of that point at the bottom of that slide. We have there the statement made that Jesus was God. The Apostle John said so, that God in His greatness and in the power of His coming is such that Jesus was God. But even beyond that, we notice in Hebrews 1 verse 8, there in the opening declaration of the book of Hebrews, we have this interesting presentation. On that occasion, the Hebrew writer, quoting from the Old Testament, said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. But yet, in that passage, it refers to Christ. It refers to Jesus, to the Son. This was what God said. As that passage is quoted from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 45, as well as an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, we have God speaking to the Son and saying, Thy throne, O God is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The Father referring to the Son referred to Him as God. How much plainer could the Scriptures have been? But yet, as that is set forth, how do others read it? What do they make of it? In sadness, they misread it at times and overlook it at others. Maybe in another instance, we can see in Philippians 2 verse 6, in this occasion, it was the Apostle Paul who, beginning in verse 5, said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It wasn't a thing to be grasped in terms of his equality with God, for he was the second member of the Godhead. And yet Paul here brings us to understand that maybe our mind will never plumb the full depths of all that that means. But we can certainly appreciate the fact of it, and we can adore him for what the Bible proclaims of him. Beyond that, we can see in John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That beautiful Lamb of God, through whom forgiveness of sin would be available. John knew who he was, declared him exactly as that Lamb of God. And in fairness, didn't Paul say in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17, Speaking of Christ... He is the only wise, invisible, immortal, eternal God. Those were the words of Paul. As all of that is highlighted, I would submit that it's an ironclad case in the Scriptures, isn't it, who Jesus was. It's our duty to respond in obedient faith to what He has set forth. And that brings us to the last section of the lesson this morning. I thought it only well to note a few Old Testament passages that we might notice in passing 
that shed even a greater sense of emphasis upon the deity of Jesus. I've chosen again but few, and I apologize for those being off the right-hand side of the screen. I didn't notice that before we began. But as we make note of them, first of all, you might appreciate Isaiah 9 verse 6 is the first one in that section. So if you're making notes about that, that's Isaiah chapter 9 verse number 6. On that occasion, Isaiah had this to say. Again, God speaking through him. For unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. And his name, or rather the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Among those names that he would be called, and remember it was the Son that was under description. It was the Son of God and he was called the Everlasting Father. And he was also called the Mighty God. Did the Old Testament predict and foretell the fact that God would come in the flesh? He certainly did. You'll also notice in Daniel 9 verses 23 to 27, the closing few verses in that, in that chapter, God again revealed to Daniel the greatness of the fact the Messiah was coming. In fact, 70 weeks would pass and He would come. And indeed, when that prophetic 70 weeks passed, Christ the child was born and His prophetic ministry began exactly when the Old Testament prophet had said that it would. That Messiah was the Christ, and it was God that came in the flesh. You can also see with me in Zechariah 13, perhaps this is the passage we'll use to close our study this morning. It's perhaps one that you and I might be tempted to overlook, but yet contained within it is such a penetrating thought. I would invite you to read with me Zechariah 13, verse 7. This was the lesson text that was read earlier in the time this morning. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Of interest is the fact that Jesus quoted that passage in Mark 14, beginning in verse 27. In the very aftermath and in the events leading up to His crucifixion, Jesus quoted that and identified the shepherd as Himself. He said, I am the shepherd, and in fact, as Zechariah had quoted, the shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will be scattered. The Lord applied that to the apostles. When He was arrested and smitten, they scattered that night. But might we notice back in verse 7 of Zechariah 13, when God made reference to that, he says, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. God made reference in that passage to someone that was his fellow. That word fellow identifies the fact that the one under description was of the same nature and character as God. It was the fellow of God. Today, you and I understand that another man is my fellow in the sense he is a man like I am. He is a flesh and blood and bones. He is my fellow man. But here God made reference to someone who was fellow God. Someone who was of the same nature, character, and being as He is. And God said, it's my fellow. And it's the same one that would be smitten. It's the same one in verse 1 whose blood would allow a fountain for cleansing to be opened outside Jerusalem. Who was this person? There's no question. It was Jesus the Christ. And here He's called fellow God. 
Zechariah 13, 7. In the sense of being the fellow of God, can we not see then that our Jesus is divine? He was deity, and He came to set before us all that's involved in being the associate of God Himself. No wonder Jesus said in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. With that said, this morning as we bring this lesson to a conclusion, I hope that we've been reminded of just how great Jesus is. It is a certain truth of the Bible that He was divine. Emmanuel was the name applied to Him, which means God with us, Matthew 1.23. Have you bowed in submission before Him today? Have you turned your life over to Him? He loves you so much that He came to die for you. God loved you so much that He sent a part of Himself to pay the price for your sins and for mine. If you have never relinquished the control of your life to Him, why not today? In Zechariah 13, 7, He was fellow God. God didn't just send someone and it was what we might say is dispensable. He didn't just find the lowest rank of the angels in heaven and send the, that one. He sent the part of Himself the second member of the Godhead. And 2,000 years ago, wicked humanity put him to death. About 2,000 years ago, men had such disdain for his message and such carelessness for his being, they put him to death. Despite the fact that he had no sin, he was no criminal, despite the fact he had never harmed anyone or anything, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 and following. If today you would like to be the follower of that great one, if you'd like to be a member of His kingdom and His body, we could assist you in bringing that to pass this very morning. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. That is the way in which you can be made a part of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. If you have done that, and known just how special and blessed a life it was. But you've allowed Satan to come between you and your God, and now you're following Satan. Please don't remain in that state. Come back to this one who loved you so much that he sacrificed his life for you. God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you'd like to come to the Master this morning to rededicate your life, or to become a member of his kingdom... We'd be honored and happy to assist you, and we'd like to do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.